We now start in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 6. The main point. What is the main point of what he's been saying? Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have prepared us to be ready for heaven. We know that our life now on earth is uh, mere, uh, merely temporary. It will not last forever and ever, but heaven will. And our joy with you, our presence with you, our hope with you, all of this will last forever. Therefore, Father, make our minds fixed on this truth and give us faith to believe it and to preach this faithfully to others. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, it was about a week ago that I was studying the Bible in a group, and the teacher of the group said repeatedly that the Old Testament faith was a physical faith. It was a faith in the physical life. But what I heard last week is not just unique to that situation. It's actually commonly believed among many people who go to church, many people who study the Bible, even among scholars so-called, they think that when they read the Old Testament, when they read the books of Genesis to Malachi, that the books of Genesis to Malachi, and even in particular, especially in particular, the law of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and all that Moses under the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant instituted was only about physical things, only about the physical life. Nothing about the spiritual life, not about the life to come, the age to come, nothing about heaven, nothing about forgiveness of sins to be with the Lord forever and ever. Nothing like that, but only and merely physical things. That's what they think. Therefore, th their conclusion would have to be that it was all about health and wealth in the Old Testament. As long as they prayed to God, they would have good health. As long as they prayed to God, they would have plenty of wealth. As long as they prayed to God, then their enemies would not attack their borders. As long as they prayed to God, they would have plenty of crops. Their, their calves uh, or, or their cows would calve and they would have plenty to eat and drink, meat to eat and milk to drink. Everything would be just fine, happy and dandy for them if they merely obeyed whatever physical requirements God gave them, such as the tabernacle and other physical requirements, as long as they did those things, then their physical life would be happy and sweet. They would have no concern 
for the things of the, uh, uh, of the problems or the trials of life. Everything would be in order and peaceful and comfortable for them. This is the conclusion if the Old Testament is not about heaven. If the Old Testament is only and merely talking about the physical life and not about heaven at all, then the Old Testament saints or the Old Testament people, they had no hope. They had no assurance of the forgiveness of sins. They had no eternal life. How could they have eternal life unless they knew about eternal life? How can they know about heaven unless they knew about heaven? How can they believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins if they never knew about Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? If they never knew about the coming of Christ, how could they live for the unseen, heavenly, eternal world? They would not have done so, but only for the physical world. Well, this misinterpretation of the Bible has been throughout Old Testament uh, history and even from the time of the apostles, during the time of the apostles, and after the time of the apostles, this plague has plagued anyone and everyone who hears the words of God. That plague because we are, by nature, fixated on the physical world. Whatever our eyes can see, whatever our ears can hear, whatever our hands can touch, that's what we want, that's what we want to enjoy, that's what we want to set in order, that's what we want to comfort us, to give us peace, to take away our anxieties, whatever it may be, that's what we want. We want the physical world. But the Bible, even from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, from the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis onward, is all about the spiritual world being um, insurmountably more important than the physical world. Immensely more important is the spiritual world than the physical world. Well, that's why in our chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, he tells us what his main point is. If we have not received or understood his main point so far, he's telling us what his main point is. And notice, just briefly in verse 1, he says, it is about the heavens, the majesty in the heavens. Verse 2 Something or the tabernacle that the Lord pitched, the Lord set up, he pitched it. Verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So he has reiterated there that he's talking about heaven as the main point. How to get to heaven. How to be with the Lord where there is eternal peace, eternal comfort. How to get to heaven is his main point. And the way to get to heaven is only through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. That is the only way to get to heaven. That's his main point. Jesus and Jesus' death is the only way for us to reach heaven. If we would just focus on that truth and let all the implications of that one truth permeate our life, our life would be different. It would be transformed. We would be people who are truly fixated on the love of God, on the fear of God, on the glory of God, on pleasing God, and not anything of this world. That's what we would be doing. That's what he wants his own readers to do. Because his own readers are tempted with all of the commotion and the cacophony of the world 
The world is saying, come this way, come this way, do this, do this, follow me, do this, do that. They're trying to entrap and enslave the people of God. The world is always trying to do that because the devil and the world work against our flesh and the temptations we face in order to drag us down and to drag us through the mud. But he's saying, no, don't do that. Keep your eyes fixated on this great high priest. So let's do so. Let's see his argument again on why this is the main point and how he explains his main point. Verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When he says we have such a high priest, this high priest has been explained in chapter 7. Everything he has said about Christ being superior to Abraham, superior to Moses, superior to David, superior to anyone, because his priesthood lasts forever. Moses and Aaron's priesthood did not last forever, could not last forever, was never intended to last forever. It was not based on an oath. Jesus' priesthood was based on an oath, and his is forever. They offered up animals. He offered up his own body. This is the kind of high priest we have who is superior to anyone or anything anyone could imagine. And what has he done? He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When one is standing and not sitting, and and sitting implies resting, but when one is standing, it implies that one is working. But Jesus is Sitting, he says, he is uh, sitting at the right hand of God. For example, chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verse 11, he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The priests offer animal sacrifices which can never take away sins. He says, they stand doing this work. So if they're constantly standing and working for these animal sacrifices, doesn't all of that imply that it is in and of itself not the source for their forgiveness of our sins? After all, we're dealing with a human, a Levite or an Aaronite offering sacrifices on the altar. We're dealing with a sinful man. We're dealing with a finite man. We're dealing with a man who offers an animal, not his very own blood. We're dealing with someone who's constantly working. He he is not sitting, or the priests do not sit, because they constantly need to receive the sacrifices from the people generally and for their own sins, constantly receive them and place them on the altar. They're constantly working and working and working, and working so much that they need to be in rotation. They need to have phases or rotations for groups of them to come and do all this work. That's how laborious it was. That's how intense it was. They were constantly standing. But in the case of our Lord and Savior, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He has taken his seat. He already offered the one and only sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. He doesn't offer animals. He offers his own blood. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, When he had made purification of sins 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty on high, or the majesty in the heavens, is a, a roundabout way of him referring to God the Father. God the Father, the majestic one, the lofty one who deserves all honor and glory. He's talking about an, uh, another term for God the Father. The Father is the one who is this majesty. So, being there, right next to, seated next to, God the Father, he has completed his work. And this he did in the heavens. He did this in the heavens. When he completed his work, he did not go to his home nearby in order to sit and relax, to eat his dinner and go to sleep, which the earthly priest would have done. No, when he accomplished his work, he actually ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's where he is, in heaven. So if, he has if he's a priest and he completed his work, he is seated, and he's seated in heaven, is that not much more important? Is that not much more glorious than anything an earthly priest could do? Of course it is. There's no argument. If anybody is thinking rationally, clearly, he would be saying, of course that is the case that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, is better and more glorious. Notice in verse 1, not only in verse 1, but in verse 4, if he were on earth. These two statements, as well as chapter 1, verse 3, are indicative of the fact that our apostle believes in the ascension of Christ, that Christ actually ascended into heaven. That's what he's asserting. Because he's saying he's not on earth. He ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. So he writes this letter after that 40-day period and assumes and acknowledges that Christ is not on earth. He says, if he were on earth, which means he's not on earth. Now, let's clarify and, and make certain that we understand that Jesus ascended into heaven. Why is this so important? Some of the uh, creeds and the confessions of the past make a point of asserting this ascension. But why is it so important? It's important because of what our apostle is arguing in this letter. He's arguing that if this did not happen, what assurance do we have? What confidence do we have of anything? So let's assure ourselves that this actually was a physical, literal event that occurred in the presence of eyewitnesses. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes to his friend Theophilus. And he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, he's referring to the book of Luke. So he wrote the book of Luke, and the book of Acts is his sequel to that first book. Verse 3. To these, to his apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he lifted up, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That is the ascension. The ascension, it says in verse 2, that he was doing these things until the day when he was taken up. Until the day he was taken up. And then the, the apostles are wondering, is it right now that the kingdom of God is going to be restored? And Jesus' answer is, no, the gospel has to be preached everywhere. And then he is taken up from them, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he, lift, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So they saw him physically. They saw his physical body after the resurrection, talking to them, eating with them, such as in Luke 24, eating with them in John 21, eating with them on more than one occasion. He then was lifted up physically, bodily, while they were looking. While they were looking. So there were eyewitnesses who saw this ascension of Christ. He was taken up into heaven. And just as he was taken up, he will return in the same way. Do we not believe in the return of Christ? Do we not believe that when he comes, he'll come in the sky. And when he comes in the sky, we will see him. He will be coming bodily. In his physical body, he will come back. So if he will come back in his body... It was that same body that was lifted up in the presence of the apostles. This was a real event. It was a real event, not just to show uh, some kind of a magic show, not just to perform some kind of magic or miracle in the presence of the disciples to wow them, but it is the implication of why he was raised physically. It's the implication of that. He was raised physically... Because we shall be raised physically. He went into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father because he is there as our intercessor. He is there as our assurance. He is there as our forerunner because we will also go there. And how will we go there? When he comes back to take us to be with him. This is why it says in 1 John that he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he, just as he is pure. And he says... But when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. So as he was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, we also, when he receives us, we will be raised from the dead immortally and be with him 
forever. So is that not much better? Is that not much better than putting an animal on the altar or mixing the incense right or, or using the correct fire of the incense, making sure it's put in the pan correctly so that God does not put you to death physically? Of course we don't want God to put us to death physically and instantly, right? We don't want him to do that. But what about our soul? What about our relationship to the Lord because of our soul? Is that not more important than the physical life? That's the argument he's making. So now let's go back to Hebrews 8. Now verse 2. Now who is this high priest, such a high priest, great high priest that we have? Verse 2, he is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. He is a minister in the sanctuary and true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus is a priest, therefore he has a sanctuary. He is a priest, therefore he has a sanctuary. But what sanctuary? It's not the sanctuary of Moses, the tabernacle of Moses, or even the temple of Solomon, or the temple of Zerubbabel. It's not any of these temples. It is only the one in heaven. Notice he calls it the true tabernacle. By true, he doesn't mean that the Old Testament one was a false one. What he means is, this is the fulfillment. This is the reality. This is the true reality. This is what we really want and need. That's what Jesus came to minister on our behalf. He came to minister in that true tabernacle. We know he's not saying that the Old Testament was a false tabernacle because God commanded it. It was needed to be erected. It was needed to be constructed. It, all of the particulars, as we read in Exodus 25, all of the particulars were stated. It was God who commanded for it to be done. So it was not false in any way. The trueness means the reality, the ultimate purpose, and Jesus is the minister of that reality. And further, it's one which the Lord pitched, not man. See, when Moses pitched the tabernacle, the tent, the tent of meeting as it is called, it was not a physical structure that Moses um, erected like a physical building. It was not a, a building with bricks and mortar and stone. It wasn't like that, a, a building like that. That's what Solomon did. But Moses erected a tabernacle, therefore he pitched it. He, he put the tabernacle together but this tabernacle is one that the Lord pitched, not man. Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle, so he is known as the author of the tabernacle or the framer of the tabernacle, the worker, the, the chief architect of the tabernacle. Yes, he was. But this one, no man had any involvement. No man had any involvement whatsoever. He's referring to the tabernacle in heaven. He's referring to that which is in heaven because that which is in heaven where the Lord dwells, no man made it, the Lord made it. And if the Lord made it, is it not superior to anything that man touches? Of course it is. Of course. So the Lord pitched that one, therefore it's better, it's superior. Verses 3 and 4. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. 
Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Why? Why is a priest there? A priest is there because a mediator needs to be there between God and men. There needs to be someone who mediates and pacifies the wrath of God. Someone who brings a sacrifice to God so that his wrath is appeased, so that he is not going to punish us for our sins. There needs to be a means of reconciliation. So what is the means of reconciliation? Every high priest on earth, their means of reconciliation was to bring a sacrifice. They had to bring an animal. Otherwise, if they did not bring the animal, if they did not do everything correctly, they would have died instantly or could have died instantly if God so will. They, that would have happened. That's why gifts and sacrifices were necessary. Now, in our case, we need a sacrifice to approach God. He made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ who knew no sin to become the sin offering. The offering that we needed to pay the penalty for our sins, it was Jesus himself. His own body, his own blood for our redemption. Therefore, how can we, if that's the case, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and hence it is necessary that this high priest, meaning Christ, also have something to offer, and we know what he's alluding to. We, we know he's alluding to his own body, that Christ offered his own body. How could that, therefore, be secondary or tertiary or any other category we might place? on the crucifixion, on the death of Christ. How could it be anything less than central and the focus of anything and everything we do? But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, he says. I'm not going to boast in anything except in the cross of Christ. The only thing that concerns me is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And this is what I tell other people. It's not their works, it's faith in Christ. Only Christ. Christ and Christ alone. He says, if a priest is appointed, this is his reason for appointment. And if his reason for appointment is this, then who could minimize or strip away anything from the significance of the cross of Christ? Because that was his sacrifice. Not an animal, not a grain offering, but his own body. Verse 4 continues by saying that if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. That's referring back to how he is from the tribe of Judah, chapter 7, verse 14. Hebrews 7, 14. He's from the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Judah was not to be involved with the temple service. Only the tribe of Levi was to be involved with that. And even then, the men, the qualified men, 20 years old and upward, they were the ones, uh, or 25 and 30, depending on uh, the period of time in history, 
that they were the only ones qualified to enter into the service. So, Jesus would not be for that. If he wasn't for that, and you associate with Jesus, then why do you associate with Jesus, is his point. His point is, they offer, and they're continuing to offer, because this temple is still standing when he wrote this letter, he's saying, there are those, not there were, were those, but there are those who offer, not, not who used to offer, they're offering. So this letter was written sometime between AD 30 and AD 70. Because in AD 70, the temple was destroyed and there are no more animal sacrifices. So when he's writing this, he's saying, listen, you are trying to stick with this Levitical code of sacrifices, but you're also saying you believe in Jesus. Don't you realize that if you believe in Jesus, then he is of another priesthood. He is of, of another vein. He is of another path, another purpose in, in God's purposes. Not the path of the Levites, which Moses started, but a different one. He's on a different one. So if you claim Jesus, you need to claim his sacrifice, not all those other sacrifices. You cannot have it both ways. You either have Christ or you have nothing. That's the only way. And further, why is it the only way? Verse 5. The priests of the, of the day who are offering animals, he says, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. If they serve the copy and if they serve the shadow of heavenly things, how could that be the way to heaven? It can't be the way to heaven. The way to heaven has to be in the things signified. If these are signs, if these are shadows, if these are copies, well, I want the original. I don't want the copy. I want the original. So where is the original? In heaven. If it's a shadow, then I don't want the shadow. I want the person. I want the body. I don't want the shadow of the person. I want the person himself. If it is a sign, I don't want the sign. I want what the sign signifies. That's the point he's making, that they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Heavenly things. Things unseen. Things that only God can do for our redemption. So, if that's the point, he proves his point. He is proving the point that they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for he says, See, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. We read that passage in Exodus 25. That's Exodus 25, verse 40. As well, it is said in many other places in that narrative, such as Exodus 25 and verse 9. And it says that in Exodus 26, Exodus 26, verse 30. For example, he says, uh, excuse me, Exodus 20, yes, Exodus 26 and verse 30, he says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. 27, verse 8. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain. So 
they shall make it, and so forth. There are several examples of this statement being made. The clearest of them all is the one our apostle quoted from 25 verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. So, if Moses was making this tabernacle after a pattern, then what was the reality? If he was making something after a pattern, what was the true tabernacle? What was the reality? It was a heavenly reality. That was the point. That's the reason why he quotes that verse. He's saying, listen, folks, if Moses was told this, and he was warned by God about all of this, if Moses knew all this, and we know also that Moses entered into this tabernacle, into the most holy place where the mercy seat was, and there God said he would speak to Moses personally. No other prophet was able to experience that kind of close communion with God. In the most holy place where God would speak to him everything that he was supposed to write and command the people. No other prophet. In fact, in Numbers 12, God makes a distinction between Moses and all the other prophets. He says, with Moses, I speak to him face to face. I speak to him personally. By face to face, he means Moses goes into the tabernacle. God is unseen, but going into the most holy place on the very inside where the Ark of the Covenant is and where the mercy seat is, the lid of the Ark, and the angels, the two cherubim, facing each other, golden, all of this golden and golden, uh, gold-plated, all of this there is where God would speak to him. Now tell me. Now these people in the book of Hebrews, they know. They know all this. Now tell me, if this is the case, do you think Moses understood the warning? Do you think Moses understood the pattern? Of course he did. Of course he did. God showed Moses the meaning of the pattern. That means that Moses was preaching Christ through everything he was doing. Moses was preaching Christ through everything and in everything he was doing. You may say, how do we know that? Well, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 24. 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The text says very, very clearly in verse 26, 11, 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches. When he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches, he means the ignoble, uh, infamous death of Christ, the reproach of Christ. He believed in that death of Christ for his forgiveness, and he was looking to the eternal reward, not to any earthly reward. He was not looking for peace, progeny, and a pot belly. He was not looking for fame and fortune and fun. He was not looking for these things. He was looking to the eternal reward. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. The reproach of Christ. The reproach of Christ is not his resurrection. The reproach of Christ is not that he's a king or not that he is... God reigning forever and ever. 
That can't be the reproach of Christ. That's the glory of Christ. The reproach of Christ has to be a reference to his death on the cross. And he tells us clearly that Moses considered this reproach of Christ greater riches. That's the way he looked at it. Moses did. So when Moses was warned, when Moses was shown and warned to make everything after the pattern, Moses understood why. Because it's a pattern of heaven. And why is it a pattern of heaven? Because the means to get to heaven is Christ. He knew about Christ. He knew about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He knew about heaven. And that's what he preached. That's what he believed. And that's how he, what he preached and obeyed. Further, chapter 8, verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus' ministry is a more excellent ministry than the ministry of Moses. Jesus' ministry is a more excellent ministry than Aaron and all the Levites. His ministry is better. Why? Because it's a better covenant. And why? Because it's on a uh, it's a, on the basis of better promises. Okay, then, what are the promises in the law of Moses strictly related to the physical world? The, strictly related to the physical world. Let's turn to Hebrews 10. He'll explain. Hebrews 10. 10.26. What are the promises that Moses instituted that are... Unique to Moses, not unique to Christ, but unique to Moses. 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's verses 28 and 29. He compares those things that were unique to the stipulations of the law of Moses compared to the person of Christ. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This example is, he's using the most severe example. Not every transgression of the law of Moses deserved the death penalty. Not everyone, such as theft, did not deserve the death penalty. It, it deserved recompense. That is, they had to, the thief had to repay the victim, but it did not deserve death. But the most severe penalty in certain cases was death, such as sexual immorality, death penalty, idolatry, death penalty, penalties like that for that, for those kinds of sins and some others. So he says here, if they set aside the law of Moses, meaning they disregard it, they don't care to obey it, then they would die on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is, the authorities would put them to death based on the witness, witnesses in a court of law. 
verse 29. That's bad if that happened, right? That would be a severe penalty to experience. But what is worse, verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? What's the severe punishment? To fall into the hands of the living God. To experience eternal punishment. Not just the death of the physical body, but the death of the soul forever and ever in hell. In the lake of fire. That is worse. That's a severe punish punishment. That is the penalty that is the distinction between Moses and Jesus. So, the corollary is also true. Moses said, he commanded the people, such as in Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30, in Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30, chapter after chapter, he makes it quite clear that if they obeyed the law of Moses, then God would give them peace. Their enemies, their, their enemies would not attack them, they would not come across their borders, they would not attack them, and if they did attack them, they would have victory over their enemies. He promised them peace. He promised them uh, much produce in the field. He said, I'm going to give you fields that are productive, very productive, that you did not work for, that you did not plant. You didn't plant all these vineyards and olive gro groves and all of these other kinds of fruits and vegetables. You didn't do all of this, but you're going to inherit it. And this land is a fruitful land. It's not a desert. It's not a barren land. It's a fruitful land because I have concern for this land and I make sure that the rain falls on this land. I make sure. So you're going to have fruitful harvest. You're always going to have plenty of food if you obey. And then the diseases of the world. The diseases. I will not place on you any of the uh, afflictions by any of these diseases, whether common diseases or rare diseases. I won't place them on you if you obey this law. Okay, those are good promises, are they not? If they obey, then they would have health and wealth. They would have peace and prosperity. They'd have all this. Those are good promises in the law of Moses. But what's a better promise than that? Or what are better promises than that? Isn't final and ultimate eternal conquest over our enemies better than just making sure our borders are protected? Yes, that's better. What about having a soul that is healthy, uh, wholesome, sound, a soul? Not just a body that's sound, but the soul that is sound forever. Is that not more important? Yes. Who wants to be in torment with the devil and his angels and all other wicked people? Yes. Who wants to be there with Hitler and Stalin? And anyone else like that? Who wants to be there in hell with those kinds of people? Who wants to have the torment of fire torment them unendingly? Who wants that? Who wants that? Nobody wants that. So if that is better, it is better to be with God and to avoid eternal death, to be with God where there is no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, there is sweet communion. There is worship of God. There is constant glory of God in whose presence we'll be forever and ever. We will have satisfaction. We'll have comfort. We'll be at ease. No one will be there to afflict us. No one will be there to slander us. No one will be there to exploit us. 
No one will be there like that. We will only be with our Lord who loves us dearly. We'll be with Him forever. Is that not, is that not a set of better promises than the Mosaic promises? Of course they are. And if that's the case, why would we put any hope in the strictly Mosaic parts of the Law of Moses? Why would we put any hope in anything like that? Or even worse, why would we put any hope in ourselves? Why would we put any hope in another person? Why would we put hope in anything in this world? Why? Why would we do that? We should not do that. Because we know, in our case, God did not directly speak to us. God did not directly call us in, in an audible way, in a very tangible and miraculous way, audibly call us and say, okay, I want you to be my prophet. I want you to be Moses number two, or Elijah number two. I want you to be like that. This is who you will be. No, he has not done that. So if he has not done that, isn't it precarious for us to think that we can have any confidence in anything we do? Anything we do? We cannot have any confidence in that. If we should not have any confidence in Moses, if we cannot have any confidence in the sacrifices of Moses, then why anything we do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Only Christ. Christ and Christ alone. The saints of the Old Testament had this hope. The saints of the New Testament have, have this hope. The saints of the future, in all ages to come in the future, until the return of Christ, their hope will be in Christ. Christ and Christ alone. So let's make it our hope. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.